Hey listeners, we've now recorded over 65 episodes of X Chateau. And as our audience has grown, some people have not heard some of our earlier episodes. So we'll be periodically making library releases of episodes that have stood the test of time. So we thought for our first library release, we'd use one of our original episodes, episode five on wine scores. Peter, why did we decide to re-release this episode? Well, we just wrapped up a series on the evolution of the wine critic with William Kelly of The Wine Advocate, Jeb Dunnick of jebdunnick.com, Esther Mobley of the San Francisco Chronicle, and Jackie Strum of The Wine Enthusiast. A lot of great luminaries in the space. So core to what they do is how wine scores are being used. And in episode five, we talk about the importance of wine scores, how they've changed over time, and how the whole industry of scoring wines has evolved, including some insights from my book, Luxury Wine Marketing. Well, we hope you enjoy this library release, and we'll be doing these periodically. So thanks for listening. Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights with your hosts, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. We're going to be doing a multi-part series on how wineries can stand out in the crowd. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about one of the traditional ways that wineries have stood out from the crowd by using and leveraging wine scores. Peter? One of the keys to differentiating and staying out from the crowd is that there are so many different wineries these days. Wine scores was one of the traditional methods and it's getting harder and harder to leverage that to stand out given the number of wine brands there are in the world. Just in Napa, there's over a thousand different wine brands, 4,000 in California, 10,000 in the U.S., and some estimates say about 300,000 globally. If you think about a wine store shelf with 300,000 different labels on it, that's just an impossibility to figure out how to stand out. So all of the winemakers out there making all these brands, they're focused in on their craft about making artisan wine and making high quality wine. But making the wine is actually turning out to be the easy part for a lot of these winemakers and getting awareness and selling their wines seems to be the hard part. So many winemakers have told me that if I just make great wine, when people try it, they'll want to buy it or I make better wine than everyone else. And so since it's better than others, people want to buy it. And I get it. I think that from that winemaker, that craftsman perspective, like they're passionate about their craft. They're into making better, the highest quality product from their point of view. But wine appreciation and selling wine is a lot more than even just having the best product. So wine quality is a given, especially at the upper echelon of wines. But in order to differentiate yourself and build a long-lasting brand, it takes a lot of work. And that's another level of craftsmanship that a lot of wineries, I think, are underestimating in this day and age. Yeah, it's in tying it back to wine scores. In my book, Luxury Wine Marketing, I did an analysis of 100-point wines from Robert Parker's The Wine Advocate and how that's changed over time. And in 1995, there were 1,400-point scores. In 2005, there were 33. In 2015, there were 116. So that's eight times more 100-point scores in a 20-year period. So getting 100 points is a lot less special than it was in the past. Peter, that is a huge increase in the number of 100-point scores. Are people just give them away like candy? Is this really 
wines improving that much over a 20-year period, or is this some form of inflation? Well, you could definitely make an argument for wines are getting better. Technology is improved. The knowledge and viticulture and enology is getting better. And so when you try wines today, even the lower end wines, they actually taste a lot better than they did 20 years ago. You want to spit it out less when you're on the airplane and economy trying this terrible wine. It's actually okay. It's not super bad. But when you look at the data from 1995 to 2015, even though there's eight times more 100 point scores, so they definitely feel less special, the same percentage of wines got 100 points that were reviewed. So it was 0.4%. So there, the critics are maintaining the same bar for quality to hit a 100 point wine. There's just so many more wines out there. They literally reviewed eight times as many wines as they did 20 years ago. So what about the scores that aren't 100 points? Clearly, the intent of the 100-point system was originally intended to range from 50 to 100. And yes, I realize that's actually only a 50-point scale, not a 100-point scale. The reality is, is that in present day, scores below 90 are largely not used by any producers or retailers. And a score of 89 is the equivalent of the modern-day participation award. So... Are we really just using a 100-point scale from 90 to 100 and no score-based commentary? Or do those other scores really do matter? Well, I think that plays into how wineries today use critic scores and how they use them to differentiate. In the past, scores were really used to get the following of the critics to buy your brand and to buy your wines. And so you used to get thousands. 20 years ago, you would get thousands, multiple thousands of customers flocking to you if you got a really high score in the Wine Advocate or Wine Spectator. Like if you got a Robert Parker 100 point score, you get four or 5,000 people coming to your door. These days, if you've got a 100 point score, some of the wineries I worked at, we got 100 point scores from the Wine Advocate, we would get hundreds of people. So that's like 10 times less people coming in and following the same brands and maybe because there's just so many more out there. Same with Wine Spectator to be in the top 100 list used to generate lots of interaction, lots of demand for your wines. And it still does. Don't get me wrong. But if you get Wine Spectator Wine of the Year, you might get a thousand, two thousand people versus I know a friend of mine who owns a winery down in Paso Robles. He had a top 10 score in the Wine Spectator or top 10 listing in the Wine Spectator, and it was like 50 people got added to his mailing list. So it's it's not quite the same as it used to be. So wine publications are largely traditional media, and there are less wine consumers subscribing to these traditional publications, even though there are modern online versions of them. And a lot of places have moved from print to online, but the whole magazine sector in general has kind of gone away or has really diminished. And so the traditional resources for looking up wine scores have been the Wine Advocate, Wine Spectator, Decanter, and Wine Spirits. But then you also had these specialty places like Allen Meadows with Burghound or Pinophile and things like that that were really kind of dialed into one specific region or one specific area or type of wine. But 
in the last 10 years, you've had tons of spinoffs. We've had from Wine Advocate, you've had Venice spin out. We've had James Suckling spin out from Wine Spectator and also Jeb Dunnick. And then you have other reviewers and critics like Jeannie Choli and, and Jancis Robinson, Masters of Wine, who've always been doing their own reviews using their 20-point scale. Oh, I think Jancis uses a 20-point scale. So, you know, there's a lot of diversification in what was considered these benchmarks of basically the Wine Advocate and Wine Spectator for the U.S. market. And now it's been a broad spectrum of different players and trying to follow who is the latest and who's where has become a little bit difficult as a consumer or even a winery to follow. Well, and that's why scores are used so much differently now. And it makes sense, right? Instead of all these people following the same critic and one critic having an oversized influence on the market, now there's so many different ones. And it makes sense because wineries and people are using them in different ways. It's no longer everyone is subscribing to the wine advocate or wine spectator and following what they say are the best. But now wineries are actually using scores to promote their wines and market their wines. So it's a validation of quality for them. Oftentimes I've had conversations with different wine collectors all over the country and they will say, Oh, I'm drinking a hundred point wine. And it's like, Oh, cool. Which critic gave it a hundred points? Well, I I don't know. It's one of those famous critics, you know? And so it's like people are using it as just a validation for quality as opposed to knowing who the critic is and following them and buying whatever they recommend. But once you've established that brand and built that cachet, if you've racked up a handful or steady rise of high 90-point scores and a few 100-point scores, you don't really need to keep going back to them. And I'm assuming if you're a brand that's received numerous 100-point scores that you could essentially walk away from that and still fare well in the marketplace and not need those and have that high demand. Well, I think that gets back to the point of needing to build your brand and the reputation you have as a brand, either direct to consumer or in the trade, right? So you look at examples like Gigal, where I've been to some seminars with Philippe Gigal, the most recent head of the business, And he says, we don't do marketing. And it's like, okay. And they sell their wine. They sell a lot of different wine. And yeah, you don't do marketing because for the last 20 years, your brand has established such a cachet in the trade from having over 20 hundred point scores from the wine advocate for their high-end Lala wines. And those are super collectible and they provide a halo for all the other wines in their portfolio. And They have established such a brand that they don't need to do that now. If a winery did that today and was just being established, got 100-point scores from there, it would be helpful. It would be great. They would start to sell their wine. But if they made even just a few thousand cases, I'm not sure they would sell out immediately. Sure. And some critics are demonized for using the 100-point scale and bringing this to the wine industry. And... Largely, it's a very effective tool at letting people know very simply like how someone who is essentially more learned on the topic and has tasted a wide swath of wines thinks about this wine. And I think a few critics have maybe leveraged that power a little too free-wielding and have thrown the 100 points around a little bit too much in order to build their own personal brand as they've spun off to do their own thing. Well, definitely... In this new world, it's a new dynamic, and there are some critics where I think, especially if they're just establishing themselves, throwing out the higher points, because 
the points are used more for marketing. And as any wine brand or anyone selling the wine, whether it's a retailer or importer, they're going to promote the scores that are the highest, right? So if you're the highest scoring critic and you're still reasonable, it still makes sense relative to how you score and you're not diluting your own brand, but you're the highest scoring one, then on the shelf talkers and the retail shelf, on the text sheets that go out from the importers or distributors, you're going to be the one who's mentioned first and have your name out there in front. So if you're trying to establish yourself, I think you kind of bias a little bit higher in terms of score in order to get a little bit more of your name out there. So a critic that is reviewing a well-known wine, and if they're the first person or only person that gives that wine a 100-point score, it's likely that when the winery features their text sheet or when the retailer features their scores, they're going to put them down in descending order with the 100 points being at the highest. So in many ways, giving a well-known wine that's going to be looked on and read upon by a lot of investors or retailers or consumers, they're going to know that this critic is giving this wine 100 points before they read any other reviews. And they may not actually read any other reviews once they read that 100-point review. And that is helping that critic and that media outlet build their brand on the back of these wines that may or may not be deserving of that 100-point score. But regardless, they gave that wine 100 points, and therefore their score is going to go to the top, and their name awareness is going to be out there, and their brand recognition is going to be there. So it becomes this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy of where these critics will throw around these 100-point scores within reason. And because of that, they'll create their own brand awareness for their media out and their publication. Yeah. What do you think of those crowdsource scores? So I've used Delectable in the past. I've used Seller Tracker and I see the scores. For me personally, I don't know how it influences my decision making in terms of buying. And I'm just kind of curious if you had any other thoughts and how those work. When I think about wine scores is that they're a snapshot in time. And so for a lot of famous wines, you'll even see that critics from the big media outlets will re-review wines many years later and put an updated score. And I find looking at that timestamp to be very valuable. And one of the things I like about Seller Tracker is that you can see when someone posted it. So if they posted a note on a wine that's now really old, but they posted it 10 years ago, I don't know how important that score or that note is even to me, let alone the score. And so with Vivino, when you start to extrapolate, looking at who that audience is, at least with Seller Tracker, if you have a seller and you're actively going onto the website and updating that information, you're a pretty serious drinker. You're not the average consumer. But Vivino and Delectable have made it so easy that you can just scan your wine and tag something and put your brief thoughts on it. If you had a certain volume for any one specific wine, maybe it was like if you cared about what the 2016 or 2018 Mayomi Pinot Noir would be, maybe that would be effective for a mass market look. But I don't necessarily know that I take the weight of those scores as highly as I do either something like Seller Tracker and then even that of one of the reviewers of one of the mainstream media outlets. I will say that there are bloggers and Instagram influencers that are very knowledgeable and speak very highly whether they're collectors or actually in the trade and this is their personal accounts. I find that if you read the content and don't just look at the score, you can learn a lot about what someone's palette is and learn how to line up with that. I think that's something that has largely gone away by the 
huge increase in wines that are being reviewed globally for some of these mainstream medias, but also just the sheer number of people that they need to have in order to field all these wines where I can dial into, I know someone who's an amazing champagne authority and they review wines on a regular basis. And I know that if I had a question, I could either A, go ask them, but I can also look up all of their posts regarding a top producer and really find out like how it's made and what they think about it for that vintage. So the scores that come out of, or the marketing, I guess, if you want to call it that, that comes out of like a Vivino or Delectable or Cellar Tracker, there's a score there, but does it introduce new people to it? Because for me, my experience was I had a bottle, I put it in the system, and then I could see the scores. And it might help with Cellar Tracker, it might help me figure out when I should be drinking a wine that I already own. But I guess maybe I don't know how to use it that well, but I don't know how to use it to tell me what else I should be buying. Yeah, it's more like a Yelp review after you've eaten food from a restaurant. You don't necessarily look it up prior on the Vivino app. And maybe the Holy Grail is you're using that app at the wine store to look something up. I don't think that's actually happening that often. I think it's essentially a light version of Seller Tracker where people are just putting their notes. Where on the flip side, I don't think it's actually creating any exposure either. I don't believe that if you're a top Vivino reviewer that you're really influencing the wine trade or wine buying behavior. But I think if you are a blogger or you are an influencer, and I use that term loosely, I think that you can have increased exposure for small wineries or wineries that don't have as much distribution and awareness for even regions of wines or styles of wines that even a magazine wouldn't get because sometimes these people have a ginormous followings and a huge interaction. And so it's not just how many people view it or how many even people go and buy it, but it's actually how many people consume the content, process it and see it somewhere else and then start to like, okay, I'm going to bookmark that and put that on my, like, I want to look up this wine or come back to this region and understand more about this producer. And as they start to see more and more of it, they really start to get brand awareness. So it's definitely much more measurable in the digital age with Instagram and with traditional blogs as well. On that topic, one of the old school blogs, Wine Berserkers, that I've actually seen with some of the brands I used to work with have an impact. It's a lot of these old school collectors who definitely, I don't know if they're old, but like they definitely love collecting wine. They're very passionate about it. And that referral within that community is valuable and powerful. And so I've definitely seen at least dozens of people sign up for mailing lists based on recommendations coming out of Wine Berserkers. Yeah, it's definitely a place that I'll go and look up information if there's some obscure information about a smaller wine that was maybe larger regarded or isn't imported to the U.S. anymore. You'll sometimes find some really detailed information from someone who's either visited there or from a collector who really is dug in deep and knows a lot about that winery and how that wine's made. And I find those interactions very valuable, but they're few and far between. And it is not the most easy to use website out there. And obviously it's on the flip side of something like Vino and Delectable, which are easy to use, but you don't get that depth of content. So where do we end up, Robert, on the whole wine scoring thing and where it plays into the world today? Well, clearly wine quality is paramount and critical, but that alone isn't enough to sell your wines. Scores are critical, especially if you're going for that upper tier wines where you want people to buy, hold, and sell them and essentially have a return on their investment. There are wines out there that clearly have a high secondary market value that is higher than their release price. And that is part of their cachet and part of their appeal for many buyers. In general, 
I think that people need to have a clear articulation of what their brand is and understand how they're going to stand out from the crowd and how they're going to differentiate. And clearly there's more critics than there were in the past. And there's a lot less concentration and following of any one person than there was 20 years ago. And then you factor in all the new channels that have surfaced. So you need to figure out what works for your brand and how to dial that in and basically get your wines and your information about your brand out to all the channels possible, figure out what works and then double down on that. Yeah, I think the cost of customer acquisition is basically going up with the competition increasing, dilution of marketing channels, including wine critic scores, getting your name and brand out there, building it out is a lot more work and a lot more money probably than it ever was in the past. Well, why don't we stop it there? Because in our follow-up episode, we can talk about building the brand and some little bit more tactics that people can be doing. Cool. Sounds good. All right. Cheers. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of Egg Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.